Hello, this is Brian McCormick welcoming you to another edition of the Leadership Podcast Series from the resource for leaders, leadernetwork.org. Our National Leader of the Month is James O'Toole. Dr. O'Toole is an author, speaker, professor, and seminar moderator. He serves as the Daniels Distinguished Professor of Business Ethics at the University of Denver's Daniels College of Business. His research and writings have been in the areas of leadership, philosophy, ethics, and corporate culture. As a speaker and moderator, he has addressed numerous major corporations and professional groups. He has authored 16 books, and his Vanguard Management was named one of the best business and economics books of 1985 by the editors of Business Week. He has a doctorate in social anthropology from Oxford University and was a Rhodes Scholar. During his distinguished career, Dr. O'Toole has left his mark on the field of leadership. Some highlights of our conversation include his description of two books he recommends for aspiring leaders, his selection of three of his most admired leaders, and an explanation of why he chose the three people that he did, the examples of great leaders and leadership that he has drawn from his decades of research and interaction with well-known leaders, a discussion about the importance of the liberal arts education, and the downside of the era of the celebrity CEO. I also personally enjoyed his story of how turning down an amazing opportunity early in his career may have been one of the best decisions he ever made. Listen in to find out what lessons he drew from that story. And now we begin this month's podcast with National Leader of the Month, James O'Toole. As we begin, Dr. O'Toole is discussing his most recently released book that he co-authored with Warren Bennis and Daniel Goleman. The book is titled, Transparency, How Leaders Create a Culture of Candor. You know, Warren Bennis, who is really one of the the, the great um, scholars of, of leadership, uh, has been a, a colleague of mine for a very long time. And uh, Warren uh, wrote an article with uh, Daniel Goleman, who is the person who is famed for um, uh, writing about emotional intelligence. Right. And, um, and the two of them were... Uh, struck by the fact that in in governments all around the world and in corporations and even nonprofit organizations, um, attempts had been made uh, over the last few years to uh, suppress information, uh, to try to uh, hide things within the organization, not only to hide it from from as as an Enron to hide it from the outside, but even to hide it from people on the inside. And uh, what they, what, what the conclusion they came to was that the free, a free flow of information, uh, both with inside the organization and to external stakeholders, is really necessary to have a healthy, uh, healthy organization. And you know, they started asking, uh, you know, the question of, uh, you know, what, what is a culture of candor? What does it mean to be a truly transparent organization in which the right information gets to the right people uh, at the right time? 
uh, what are the costs to the organization when that doesn't happen, uh, and um, uh, what, what are some of the benefits that, that, that accrue to, to an organization when it does. And so uh, they identified uh, a whole set of characteristics of, of organizations that are, that are really characterized by transparency and, uh, and, and candor. And then uh, it occurred to them that the lesson in all of this was that really transparency is inevitable and that uh, we learned about uh, all of these efforts to hide things and to cover up things uh, eventually, and that given uh, the technology today, particularly with the Internet and with computers, you can't keep secrets anymore, yet uh, uh, organizational leaders still attempt to attempt to do so. And uh, there's just one example after another of uh, leaders doing things that are really very self-defeating to their organizations through trying to cover up or trying to hoard uh, information. And um, uh, when, when I had a chance to talk to, uh, uh, to, to Warren about this, uh, I realized that it, it, it was very much a part of work that I had been doing on speaking truth to power and the, the, um, how it is incumbent upon people and organizations uh, you know, to speak up uh, when uh, people at the top are doing something that is damaging to the organization, whether it's unethical or, or merely, merely bad management, and why it is important for leaders uh, to make sure that they really have an open door, and, and, and more important than an open door, but a truly an open ear, uh, when uh, people down the ranks come uh, to bring them news that perhaps they don't want to hear. And so uh, uh, Warren, Dan, and I um, came out with, with, with this book that actually uh, has just come out this week, uh, called Transparency, Creating a Culture of Candor, that talks about um, why leaders uh, need to be able to create um, organizations in which everybody feels free to speak uh, the, the truth to power, everybody uh, has uh, access to information, and how that can be done, and what are the consequences for, of, of not doing it. So uh, we're pretty excited about, about the book because we have examples from um, you know, the federal government, we have foreign examples, we have examples from corporations in, inside the U.S., uh, of where uh, leaders have attempted to uh, to hide the truth, to to keep you know, people from getting information, and then it has blown up in their face in a way that that has really destroyed their careers and their organizations. But we also have examples of leaders, you know, who've really done the right thing and created the the, the, the this really free flowing uh, uh, culture inside their organizations and have had uh, uh, reaped enormous benefits from having done so. And so, uh, so we're pretty excited about about the book. And as I say, it's just hit, it's going to it's hitting the uh, the bookstores even as we speak. Terrific. Well, that's it. Sounds like great material. I guess one question that jumps to my mind through the process of researching this: Did you ever come across any instances where too much candor was negative at all, or was it was pretty much all the evidence in support of? I mean, the more candor. The more transparency, the better off the organization well, is. There are obviously certain kinds of secrets that are legitimate. For example, that Coke, Coca-Cola doesn't tell everybody uh, what the ingredients are for classic Coke, sure. and I mean that that is a a, a legitimate uh, uh, business 
secret, and, uh, and, and and so we're not talking about things of that of that nature, or we're not talking about uh, when you're doing some research and uh, you know it, it's going to give a company a competitive comparative advantage. Obviously, don't you know don't give that out to the world. Um, so, uh, with with that aside, most things actually can be um, uh, disclosed. Uh, my colleague uh, Ed Lawler uh, has done research showing that it really makes sense to post everybody's salaries in an organization. It, it used to be that in almost every company, the biggest secret was how much everybody was making. And um, that really creates uh, far more problems than, than, than are created when you actually let everybody know what everybody's making. And uh, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but it, but it really uh, uh, actually benefits the organization in, in, in the long haul. Uh, you also have to be careful with how you give people uh, information, and you have to sort of practice having difficult conversations. Uh, there are harmful ways of, of telling people news that they need to hear, uh, uh, and there are certain kinds of ethical things that you must do to protect innocent people. And uh, those are, those are the, a lot of the things we cover in the book about sort of what are the kind of the ethical tests of when you do speak to the power, uh, and what are the ethical tests, you know, when you give people some news, you know, that, that, that they don't want to hear. How can you do that in a way that's not damaging? So, so I think you're absolutely right. You have to be careful, but once those ethical concerns are, are covered, on the whole, you can say that, uh, that, that there are very, very few secrets that are, that are legitimate in organizations. Terrific. Oh, it sounds, it sounds like a terrific book, and looking forward to reading it. Transitioning to some other books, uh, when asked some of some books that you'd recommend for aspiring leaders, one of the books you mentioned was Max Dupree's Leadership is an Art. Could you talk a little bit about why you recommend that book for aspiring leaders? I'm getting to be a pretty old guy. You know, I'm, I'm now in my mid-60s, and uh, over the years I've had the opportunity to meet uh, a great number of of corporate leaders and, and and government leaders as well, but mainly mainly corporate leaders, and to have chats with them about about their philosophy of leadership, and I think the one person who of all of them with, with whom I've had those conversations, who I think showed the most depth, the most depth of thought, and also I think whose ideas and philosophy uh, stand uh, the test of time. Uh, better than any other one was, was Max Dupree, who was the CEO of the Herman Miller Company, and uh, Max wrote a book, something now. It's been probably 20, 25 years ago. Now it's been a long time, and uh, I still assign the book uh, to my my MBA students uh, because it is full of uh, of so much wisdom. Um, you know, Max is was is really. Uh, Probably the best single example of, of a servant leader uh, that uh, that I've ever seen in terms of he really practiced what he preached, and he um, he was probably the first to understand uh, the importance of, of truly empowering his people and uh, truly understanding the importance of uh, leaders creating the organizational context in which people can grow and develop and, and make a contribution. And, and um, uh, everything that Max did was informed by the moral principle of respect for people. And, uh, and what, what Max did is he took that from, from merely being a kind of a pious statement, but actually 
put it into practice and did a lot of very, very practical things at Herman Miller um, that institutionalized uh, that kind of respect so that the people knew where they stood and they, they had a sense of, of security that they would be not, not be treated in, in an arbitrary uh, fashion. And it, it, was, it was a really very liberating thing. And I think that, that uh, in Max's little book, uh, he really tells young and aspiring um, uh, leaders you know, what they can do to be more, more effective. He gives them some very, very sound advice. Okay. Another book you had identified was Robert Townsend's Up the Organization. Could you talk a little bit about why you recommend that book? Bob wrote the book in 1969 when he was the CEO of the Avis company, and he was the one who made Avis try harder. And um, uh, the, the subtitle of Up the Organization is How to Stop the Corporation from Stifling People and Strangling Profits. And... Uh, in, in the book, it's a very, very sh- it's a short book with very short chapters, uh, and they're all presented just in alphabetical order. And he makes a, a single point about leadership uh, in each one of those chapters. He gives a couple of examples of, of, of what it means, you know, to actually practice uh, what is really what you would call truly sound and very practical leadership. And he does it with incredible humor and uh, in, in with, with, with marvelous style, and uh, it's an incredibly engaging book. Uh, it's the sort of thing that you, that you don't want to put down because, uh, you know, you are not only nodding your head in agreement, uh, but you're also laughing your head off at the, at the same time because it's so, uh, it, it, it's so funny. And uh, 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 Warren Bennis um, has a, a series of books that he does with Josie Bass, and they have just reissued uh, the, the book in a... Um, commemorative edition uh, within the last year, and uh, in that, uh, Warren and, and, and myself and, and four or five other people who knew Bob and were um, uh, colleagues of his, and in some cases he was our mentors, he was in, in my case, uh, you know, talk about what we learned uh, from Bob uh, and um, about, how, about how to lead. I was very fortunate to have been on the board of a corporation uh, that um, that Bob was also a member of the board on, and and I saw what it was like uh, to actually work with a man who was a, was was a great leader, and how he kept uh, our board uh, focused, uh, how he kept us dealing uh, on, the, on with with great integrity. Uh, and insisted upon our behaving in, in an absolutely ethical way, and you know when, when you see what has happened, when you see what has happened in so many boards over the, la- over the last couple of years, how they have neglected their duty. Um, you know, having served with uh, with, with Bob, uh, you could see how how all of those problems really are avoidable. Uh, you know, if you ha- if you have uh, a really great and thoughtful leader like Bob as a, as a member of the board. Sure. As far as your own life, you've identified your experience at Oxford University and your Rhodes Scholarship as some important turning points. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, I think that uh, I was, uh, my father was a teamster, and uh, you know, he, he did not even have a, uh, a high school education, and my mother only had a high school education. I was the first person in my family to uh, to attend a university, and uh, I got very fortunate uh, to have been uh, awarded a Rhodes Scholarship. And 
uh, I was able to spend um, a couple of years in, in Oxford and actually one year in Africa doing doing research in which um, uh, it was relatively unstructured and uh, I was able to, to really think and read, uh, consider what I wanted to do with my life uh, to, to broaden myself and to kind of make up for the fact that I had, you know, had been had a relatively culturally disadvantaged background, uh, but in, in in three years, uh, I was able to um, uh, you know to learn a lot of things that um, uh, have held me in good stead throughout uh, throughout the rest of my life. And uh, Oxford really gives you a chance to become an educated person, uh, particularly if you're taking a graduate degree. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of of freedom. And uh, they expect you to be able to learn how to how to teach yourself, and and you re- you really are, are forced to learn how to use a library and you have, uh, forced how to think and how to write, and uh, so it was a, a, a truly marvelous opportunity that I would not have had had I probably stayed in in the U.S. and had been forced to take follow a course of of, uh, of study that led me you know to in a narrow way to get it to get a job, and so I had a chance of a broadening education instead of a narrowing one. And uh, and I've been grateful for that ever since. When asked about some mentors that have impacted your life, you had identified Warren Bennis, who you have already referenced, and also Mortimer Adler. Could you talk a little bit about those two mentors and their impact on you? Well, I, I was fortunate enough to meet Warren uh, in, in Aspen in 1973 when he was president of the University of Cincinnati, and uh, and I was just beginning uh, my career. I had just taken a job uh, as a professor, at, uh, a first-year professor at, at USC. And uh, you know, Warren was really able to uh, to steer me into in some very fruitful directions in terms of uh, of research. And um, at, at one point, uh, I had written a book, and um, I, I felt pretty good about the book. And um, but I wasn't sure you know, where I was going to go from there. And Warren looked at this and he said, "You know, he said you've you've missed one very important thing in this whole book, and that is the whole concept of leadership. You know, you're you're, t- you're talking a lot about management, and you're talking about the organization. He said, but imagine how much richer the book would have been had you talked about the leaders as well as the organizations and, and stressed the leadership aspect as much as you've stressed your, the organizational or managerial aspect. And um, and he was absolutely right, you know, that somehow I had managed to spend a couple of years working on a book about excellence in uh, in corporate management with, without really paying tremendous amount of attention at all to, you know, to the role of leadership in it. And uh, and, and clearly uh, that was what was missing in the book and what was wrong with it. And, 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 and ever since, thanks to Warren, uh, I've tried to see the, the organization – and the leadership is, is two sides of the same coin, and to always talk about the leaders in the context of the organizations and to talk about the organizations in the context of the leaders, particularly how the leaders have created the, the, the cultures of those organizations and what the leaders do to, you know, to create the, 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 the values and, and, the, uh, and, and the purpose uh, and the overriding purpose of, of organizations. So I think that, that, that you know, the, the Warren uh, has, uh, you know, over the years, you know, been able to call my attention to some some things that I were that, that I that I was missing. You know, and they, they may have been obvious to everybody else, but but I I certainly they weren't obvious to me. And have and he's 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 enriched my work um, enormously 
because uh, he has such a, a kind of encyclopedic mind when it comes to thinking about leadership and organizations, and he sees all facets of it, you know, in, in, in a very, very creative way. And I'm almost left breathless when I speak with him because he always has some kind of insight about organizations, you know, that is fresh and 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 gives one an entirely new perspective uh, of, of, of the problem that you're looking at. Sure. Okay. How about with uh, Mortimer Adler? Well, um, Mortimer, uh, of course, was the uh, editor uh, of the Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, editor of the, of the great books, author of, uh, of countless best-selling books, uh, and also uh, uh, very important in terms of forming the um, the curriculum uh, under Robert Hutchins at the University of, of Chicago. Mortimer was... Um, for me, important because uh, he was the uh, key intellectual and, and really the, the guiding light at the Aspen Institute uh, when I went to work there uh, in, in, the early, uh, in the early 70s. And that's, of course, what, you know, when I met Warren at the same time. And um, uh, like a lot of people, uh, I had a lot of information in my head, but I didn't have a way to make sense of it. I didn't have a framework for dealing with it or a way to, to, to order it and to be able to call upon it and to use it in a way. And because Mortimer was such a disciplined thinker, uh, that spending a couple of weeks with him, actually listening to him for a couple of weeks, it allowed me to, um, to, to structure my thoughts in a way that uh, and, and provided a framework that I have been drawing on uh, ever since. And, and so when you know I pick up a piece of information here or there, it isn't just a random bit of information. You know, I'm able to categorize it in a way that I can recall it and, 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 and use it. And if it had not been for the, uh, those couple weeks with, with Mortimer, uh, that, would, that would never have happened. And I think that I probably... Um, I know that there are many books that I wrote I would never have been able to have written if, if it hadn't been for uh, uh, for Mortimer's inf in influence. So, there were, were there specific techniques that he taught you, or just more of a ge some general guidelines that you were really able to kind of hone on your own? Well, yeah, mainly it's mainly that. But I mean, he, he really taught me that 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 knowledge is not random, and that. You know there is a, a, a structure to thought, and that the more disciplined you are in terms of processing uh, ideas, is the word that he would use, um, the more you see the, the relationships of those ideas, and you understand um, when you were reading something um, what the author is attempting to say, uh, and you can critique it. And and pull out of it the useful the, the useful information, uh, and also when it comes to your to your own writing, um, uh, it allows you to to, to because of, of his, the discipline that that, that that he imposed, allowed me to create my own kind of discipline for structuring my own my, my own thinking. It wasn't that he provided a framework at all. It is actually he had his own framework, and you know it's not one that I could make use of, but. What what I learned from him is that you have to provide the framework for yourself, you know, if if you're if you were at all going to be uh, 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 to, to try to think seriously about about difficult issues. Sure. Okay. 
you had identified three most admired leaders, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you've selected those three, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Gandhi, and then Barack Obama. It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek with Barack Obama, but it certainly isn't with the first two. I think that Thomas Jefferson's contributions to our nation are really probably the greatest any single individual has ever made. Uh, uh, possibly um, his his own uh, mentee, uh, uh, Madison, uh, might you know, would be certainly in second place, but I think that that that, that really uh, the 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 framework and the vision statement that that he gave this country in the Declaration of Independence, uh, it's clearly I think the, the most important single document, um, a founding document, uh, far more important than the Constitution and far more important than the um, um, Federalist Papers uh, in terms of getting our country off on the right foot and uh and today uh, still providing us uh with its uh, majestic words uh with the challenge that we have to create a uh, a, a good society uh i think he was a man of uh, uh incredible uh, foresight uh and a man of of incredible depth and i think that he he brought to bear all of his knowledge of um um Philosophy, uh, all of his knowledge of science, um, his really uh, encyclopedic uh, knowledge of, of, of almost every every aspect of uh, uh, every human endeavor, um, you know, to, you know, to bear, and and I think that we all today continue to be the beneficiaries uh, of of that, and uh, and particularly uh, particularly his words in the. Um, uh, in, in, in the Declaration, I, I, uh, he was an Aristotelian uh, by training, and I think that the greatest philosopher of all is Aristotle. And what he does in the um, in the Declaration is he takes Aristotle and Aristotle's wisdom, and he translates it into a framework to, for a nation and what it takes to create what he was really talking about, what a good society would be and become, it would become. And I think that, that his um, uh, inspiring words, uh, you know, are still as valid today as it were the day that, that they were written. And I imagine that they're going to be timeless and that the next generation, that they will still speak to them. And hardly, I don't think even, there's no other country in the world, you know, that has a document like the Declaration uh, that is a kind of vision statement for 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 the, for the whole nation that serves to inspire and, and unite uh, in the way that he, he the way he did and I think the, you know uh, you know leaders do inspire and they unite and uh, and they they give vision and they give direction and uh, and and they don't uh, micromanage and uh, the beautiful part about the declaration is it doesn't spell out the specifics of what you should do it rather lays out the big agenda and. Uh, uh, and, and so I think it's it's marvelous leadership. Uh, Gandhi um, uh, inspires very much in, 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 in the same way. I think that that we see Gandhi, a man who was the never never the president of anything, the prime minister of everything. He never headed a party. He didn't have any wealth. Uh, he didn't have any of the normal trappings of, uh, of power. He was never, you know, um, uh, no titles and no armies and no staff and no. Uh, 
know, know anything that, that we would think of budgets or any of the kind of stuff that we associate with, you know, with, with, with power, yet he was able to uh, overcome the greatest challenge uh, that any uh, leader uh, faced uh, in the 20th century, or perhaps uh, in all times. Uh, he did it in, in a way that was uh, infused with, with morality, and he was a person who brought practicality and morality together and uh, showed us really uh, what it meant to uh, to lead without ego, to lead uh, with humility, and um, to be able to lead even without uh, without power. And uh, I can't think of a of, of a of a greater example uh, than um, than Gandhi. The reason I mentioned Barack Obama is um, you know I, I have despaired uh, ever since the time of Richard Nixon. You know that we would never have uh, a great leader uh, in 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 this nation, a, a person who really was capable of being like like a Gandhi or like a like a Jefferson or a Lincoln, you know, to you know to to unite us. Um, uh, we don't know whether Barack Obama will be that person, but he certainly has more promise than anyone in my in my lifetime to to achieve that. And he he has the uh, understanding the, uh, the the inherent understanding of what it means uh, to to, uh, to to truly lead, um, and and uh, I, I I you know I, it's always uh, uh, a risk to predict how someone will do, you know, before one um, get, get gets the job, as it were, and uh, he's far from getting the job, but if he gets the job. Um, it's going to be fascinating to watch to see if he can continue to practice the kind of leadership that he, that he has promised. Because if he does, uh, I think it will have a, um, uh, a profound and lasting uh, influence not only on this country, but on the, the, the status of our country in, in the world. And I think that he can again um, uh, give us the, uh, allow people in the world to look to us for, uh, for, for leadership. And uh, so uh, I'm, I'm very inspired by, uh, by, by, by his potential, uh, not by what he's done yet, because he hasn't done anything. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, I've never seen any, any politician with more potential than, uh, than Barack Obama, oh. more leadership potential. Sure. Well said. Can you talk about why you identify listening, humility, and service as the traits most important in a leader? Well, I think it comes back to, you know, some of the, the examples that, that you know that I've given. Whether it's uh, uh, Max Dupree uh, at, at, at Herman Miller, or whether it's Gandhi, or um, you know Lincoln, or or, or Jefferson, uh, I think that uh, these are people who uh, were not driven by uh, by ego. Uh, they were driven by the desire to to serve. Um, and to create the conditions under which uh, their people, their followers, could uh, realize their uh, their dreams and their their ambitions, and um, uh, all that starts with listening. It starts with understanding what the true needs of the followers are, um, and uh, it, it it really ends with the the leader understanding that. People will only follow you where they want to go. As a matter of fact, in the long run, they will only follow you follow you really where they where they need to go. And that, that what what a leader does to create followers uh, is to give them what they are missing, which is usually the the, the structure or the context um, 
in which they can then uh, do the hard work of, of, of achieving their, their own goals. Um, and uh, so, so I think that those, if I were just to pick three, three things, I think they're probably you know, a dozen things that are probably necessary, but uh, just to make it simple, I picked uh, I picked three, and I think I picked three of the hardest ones. Um, uh, very few uh, leaders or listeners, once they get to be leaders, they start to be impressed with their own intelligence uh, and with their own brilliance, and they quit listening. Uh, that an ego, of course, is what, what gets in the way of most leaders from being successful, and that's that's the, really the call there for you know for humility. And then, and then services, you're not doing it for yourself. Leadership is something that you do for other people. Sure. When asked what organizations can do that to encourage leaders, you said let them lead. And so I, I guess my follow-up question would be, how are organizations doing in general? I mean, I know it's hard to generalize because as many organizations as there are, there, there are many different uh, models, but could you generalize at all in, in terms of some of the organizations you've witnessed how they're doing at letting people lead? Well, I think they're doing better. I mean, and um, if you'd asked me ten years ago during the year of the celebrity CEOs, I would say that you know most organizations were slipping back into command and control with you know one person at the top. You know, whether it was a Jack Welch or a Dunlap or or, or Larry Ellison. You know, sort of, sort of calling all the shots, and everybody, uh, basically down the line, carrying out uh, the orders from from from, from above. But I, I think that we've had a, re- a very healthy reaction to that uh, over the last uh, half dozen or so years. And I think in more and more large corporations, um, you see shared leadership. Uh, you see that they don't just talk about the CEO, but they talk about the leadership team. And not only that, they talk about cascading leadership in which you try to, to build the overall leadership capacity of the organization and, and, to, and, and to get people, uh, the, the way you know that you're successful as a leader at the top is when people are leading down, down, uh, uh, down the ranks, all the way down the ranks. And that was um, uh, very much what Max Dupree was trying to do. He said that you can't tell how, how, how well a leader is doing by looking at the leader. You can only tell how well the leader is doing is by looking at the followers. You know, are they leading? And um, and I think that we can see that uh, in more and more corporations, uh, there is now uh, an effort to, to create a, a strong cadre uh, of leaders down down throughout the the, the entire organization. So I'm uh, I'm probably more optimistic about that, you know, than I've been at any time in the last uh, 20 or 25 years uh, in looking at, at what is happening in corporations. I think that this new generation of people who we have. Uh, 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 in places, leaders. If you take somebody like Sam Palmasano at uh, at IBM, you know, I mean, he is uh, uh, a breath of fresh air uh, compared to the celebrity uh, CEOs that, that we suffered through in the in the in the, in, in the 1990s. Uh, and I think that a, lot, a great number of of corporations now uh, are paying much more attention to um, leadership rather than having a single leader. And, and I think that's very healthy. I think leadership is a plural activity. It's it's not a, uh, a singular noun. It's not something that's done by a single individual. I think it, it really, in, in the best-led corporations, leadership is an organizational trait. It's not an individual trait. Sure. Well said. In, in a related point, which you kind of addressed in that last response, but I'd, I'd like to bring it up anyway, uh, when asked, how you define good leadership, 
basically you said that you, you don't notice good leadership um, for the reasons that you just talked about. And so I guess my, my related question would be, you know, a lot of people in, in the media then that, and as you reference with the celebrity CEO, a lot of people that have been recognized for their leadership, are, have they been maybe misidentified then in your estimation? Well, yeah, you know, I think that if we look at the, at the 1990s and the early, early 2000s, but really the late 1990s, everybody talked about Jack Welch. But in fact, if you look at if you look at Jack Welch, everything was about Jack Welch. I mean, people didn't talk about General Electric; they talked about Jack Welch. Um, at the same time, uh, Lou Gerstner was at IBM, and Lou Gerstner actually did a better job than Jack Welch did in terms of, of turning that company around, uh, changing its direction, putting it on solid footing, and then leaving it in a condition so that that his successor would also uh, be would, would be would, would be um, uh, as successful as he was. And what you see with, with Welch, it was all about him. He moves away. Imelda's in trouble. Um, and uh, he did not leave uh, a very solid legacy, uh, you know, the way the Gerstner did. And Gerstner was very quiet, and they almost made fun of him in the press because somebody asked him, you know, what was his vision? And he said, you know, geez, I'm not, you know I don't really have a vision. You know, I'm just trying to kind of, you know, get this thing through. And they said, oh, what, what, a, what, a, what a lousy leader you know, he must be, you know, because when they would call him, he wouldn't um, uh, talk about himself and, and, and uh, he wouldn't boast and, uh, you know, he didn't offer uh, grand plans. Uh, he, was, he was very humble in what he talked about, but he was working on the inside, really, you know, to build the organization's strengths and capabilities, particularly uh, building the next generation of, uh, of leaders in, in, in the company to take over. And so, um, uh, you know, I think we missed at least the press did, the popular press, um, when they were picking who the top two or three leaders at the time were, they were taking people like Ken Lay and, and, uh, and Jack Welch. Uh, you know, when, when, it, when if you look at who actually um, left the, the best legacy, the person who actually did uh, the, the, the most effective work as a leader, it was probably Lou Gerstner. And, and I think that there are other people, too, that, you know, who, who we don't uh, hear about, we don't talk about, um, you know, who are really very, very, um, very effective leaders. I think you take Jim Senegal, who is the CEO of Costco, and people don't hear about him. But, you know, I mean, Costco is uh, kicking the heck out of uh, Walmart. And, uh, you know, he does it in a way in which, uh, uh, with a unionized workforce, he pays people well, uh, they, they train them, they develop them, um, they treat them with respect, uh, they give them health insurance, um, uh, take care of their 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 customers in in a, in a very very positive way, um, and uh, you know, but but hardly anybody knows about them. But but the people you hear about Walmart uh, uh, every single day, and the CEO of Walmart, and and, and uh, you know his statements, uh, you know, because it's 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 all about him, you know, and um, so I, I think that the, a lot of the, the greatest leaders, you know, the most effective leaders. Are, are, are the quiet ones, and I think that that's true in a lot of things in life. You know, if you you look at philanthropy too, you know, it's not the noisy philanthropists, the ones who give a lot of money and, and put their names on buildings, um, uh, you know, who who make the greatest contribution. But there are are people who you, you and I have never heard of, you know, who are uh, you know giving their money anonymously and uh, in giving it thoughtfully in ways that are, that are truly affecting people's lives. But, uh, you know, you, you hear about the splashy ones, you know, who, uh, 
who, who named the building after themselves at uh, in Harvard or Stanford. Right. And uh, it's the same the same thing with with leadership. I think the people doing the best work are not always the ones who who are in the limelight. Okay. When asked about training programs for leaders, you had talked about the the importance of one's experiences and then also getting a solid liberal arts education. Uh, Do you think that notion of the importance of a solid liberal arts education is getting its due in this day and age? Oh, we're we're in real trouble, I think. You know, that uh, if you're in business schools like I am, you can see the pressure from universities uh, to grow uh, undergraduate business programs, to start taking in MBA students when they're juniors and seniors. Um, uh, you know, to, it used to be that, that, that an MBA uh, program was something that after you you had a liberal arts education and you had worked for a few years, you would come back in your in your uh, late twenties, early thirties. And you would get the degree because you had a lot of experience to build upon, and, and it would be be something that, that that really was very useful to you. You know, now we have people, you know, literally almost right out of high school, jumping into uh, business education, you know, without getting any life education, and uh, they haven't learned how to learn. Uh, they they don't know about history, they don't know about uh, philosophy, they don't know about literature, they don't know about human nature, you know, and uh, all they all they know about is accounting and finance. And um, that's not good for them uh, as as human beings. Uh, it's not good for companies to hire people like that who who are so narrow. Uh, and it's bad for the society because I think we need broadly educated people because we also have to be citizens and parents as well as as being business people. And uh, so you know, I think if you ask most business professors, they will tell you that they don't want to teach. Uh, business to uh, 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds, uh, you know, they're not ready for it. And and that uh, uh, what is rewarding as is, is a professor is to teach somebody, you know, who's in their 30s or 40s, uh, who has some real experience to bring to the table, and then you can deal with some, you know, some really tough issues, and they understand uh, what organizational life is like, they understand what the problems are, and and they can actually make use of uh, of their education, you know, in, in in a very positive way, not in, not not just in a technical way, in terms of of applying a technique, uh, financial technique, but rather in in the broader context of of good leadership. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. What about my my favorite question, which is, we all have a story. What is yours? Could you talk a little bit about a story? Well, I, the one that I I gave, I'll, I'll try to make it very brief. Um, I I had the opportunity, I was offered the job to be the chief staff person to President Nixon's uh, domestic council. And uh, I was very young at the time. Uh, I was probably 26 or 27. And uh, it was one of those things that was sort of really a heady experience, you know, to, you know, to be actually, I would have reported... To Ehrlichman, and of course Ehrlichman reported to the president. So I would have been two steps away from, you know, from from the president and uh, uh, basically coordinating all all of the domestic policy uh, for the Nixon administration. And uh, I also had another job offer, which was to be a special assistant uh, to the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, Elliot Richardson. And it was the lowest possible political appointment that you can get. Um, 
but I, I went and I was in, I interviewed at HCW, and I really liked the people who, who were working for Secretary Richardson. Um, and then uh, I went out, uh, and I met Ehrlichman, and, and uh, Ehrlichman said that he wanted to hire me, and the only thing I had to do was to go out and have lunch with uh, his staff, which are seven or eight top people, top staff people in the White House. And I uh, went out to lunch with them, and I was nervous as can be, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. They're all, they're all very famous people. As a matter of fact, you've heard of them all, because almost every one of them was indicted uh, in order <laughs> case. And, and I was sitting there, and I kept trying to, you know, get into the conversation. But all they wanted to do was talk about football. And, uh, and I kept trying to, you know, to turn it around, trying to show off, you know, that I knew a little bit something about you know, about government and, and you know, and, and, and about national policy. And, and all they wanted to talk about was with football. And well, well, it ended up that, you know, I came back and I told my wife, I said, you know, I really have a bad feeling about about this. You know, that you know, I didn't like these guys. I didn't think they were very serious. Um, you know, and, and you know, the, you, you expect these people who are so close to the president, you know, to really be, be thoughtful people and want to talk to me about um you know, you know, about policy issues, about health care and education and, you know, all the challenges that the country faces. You know, and we sat there for two hours, and I couldn't get them off football. You know, <laughs> and and um, uh, and I, I described to him a couple of other things that they said, which which were, 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 in hindsight, quite alarming. And and I said, but, you know, but everybody tells me how to take this job, because why you know, why would you, would you not want this big, important job in the White House as opposed to this very low-level job, you know, at HCW? And my wife looked at me, and she said, you know, I would lose all respect for you if you went to work for the White House. And so I took the job at HEW, and of course, um, uh, I probably would have gotten uh, sucked up uh, into Watergate, uh, in that Watergate mess. It probably would have, would have ruined my career right at the very beginning. And, uh, uh, and, I, and I really owe it all to my wife uh, for, uh, for not allowing my ego uh, to get in the way of, of my instinct that, uh, you know, that, that these were probably not very good people. And so I've learned uh, a lesson to that one, which is, uh, uh, first of all, you, you have to trust your, your gut, uh, but, but uh, even more important than that is to trust your wife. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. Wow. That concludes the podcast with National Leader of the Month, James O'Toole. Come back next month for another edition of the Leadership Podcast Series from leadernetwork.org.